Hey everyone, this week's episode is on familial dysautonomia, also known as FD. FD is a genetic disorder that leads to death usually around 30, if not sooner. I talk with Francis Lefcourt, Seth Walk, and Valerie Copier, and together they are creating a collaborative approach to study FD from a neurological, metabolic, and microbiome point of view. This episode is super interesting. We talk a lot about the differences between MSU and other larger institutions, the importance of collaboration in science and research, how and why this idea got its genesis. And I really hope you guys learn something from this. There's a lot to be learned and overall it's really inspiring to listen to. So is Seth coming? He's coming. He needed a few minutes. Okay. okay. But we could start. Should we start without him? Sure. Okay. Because this is an audio format, would you like to say your name and how you got interested in this project or something, some other small fact? Just Sure. So I'm Frances Lefcourt and I'm a neuroscientist and studied for my career in neural development. And... Even though it was very indirect and a circuitous route, I think the reason I ended up studying neural development is I have five first cousins with neurodevelopmental disorders. Three cousins on my father's side have fragile X, which is the most common genetic form of cognitive impairment. And two first cousins on my mother's side have this disease, rare disease called familial dysautonomia. So even though I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist and went to college (laughs) to study marine biology, I ended up right back where I started. So so I'm very passionate about Mm -hmm. what we're doing. And our goal now, so we study this disease, familial dysautonomia, and our goal now is really to find therapeutics. And towards that end, sort of the way we all formed a group is it, became clear to many of us that uh, this disease is really a system-wide disorder. Mm-hmm. Patients are really thin. They have all kinds of problems, gut problems, kidney problems, uh, you know, all kinds of problems. And so we teamed up because Valerie is an expert at metabolomics and a great biochemist. So we wanted to really do a metabolic a whole metabolomic analysis on patients and mouse models for the disease. And then Seth is an expert on microbial uh, ecology, especially in the Mm -hmm. gut, the gut microbiome. So we came up with this idea for a grant proposal to look at the interactions between the gut microbiome, the whole patient metabolome, and how they might affect neurodegeneration. And NIH funded it. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> yeah, so as Francis said, I'm Valerie Copier, I'm professor of biochemistry. And the way I got involved is... Come on in, Seth. Francis. I Hi. guess bring back that chair. <laughs> I just returned it. But All right, thanks, Seth. Uh, so Francis said... Um, she, she said she had come back from the, uh, a, a meeting at the... the NYU at the New York mm-hmm. University, where they had the FD clinic. And she said that her patients, the patients were very thin. They, wouldn't, they were not gaining weight, even though they eat a lot. 
So she thought that there was a metabolic disorder. And, uh, and I, I, it's interesting because, yes, I got interested in metabolism through, actually through teaching at MSU. I was, an, I was actually an NMR spectroscopist building an NMR oh. machine as a graduate student. But over my career here, I got more and more interested in cellular metabolism. So we started thinking about, well, how could patients and an animal model that Francis's group has developed, how, how can it, how can there be a, a single gene mutation in a nervous mm-hmm. system and how does that you know, cause such a dramatic metabolic changes? Mm-hmm. So then I told Francis to look to the liver <laughs> and Francis said, what are you talking about? Yeah. I, I, the mutation is in the brain. But I said, yes, but if it's metabolism, you know, and so we you know yeah. it's a bit of a joke between us that, you know, which organ is so critical. So now we have the gut for <laughs> Seth. My one, my favorite one is the is the liver and Francis is now in the brain, but actually now we're realizing they might be all really important, so we're kind of <laughs> shifting. Now I'm starting to think the brain is more important. <laughs> Francis thinks it's a liver and then <laughs> Seth, you know. So so it it just started by a conversation of, you know, Francis reaching out to me and to Seth and and saying, you know, what do you guys think? And I'm like, well that's really unusual. It's a really kind of random but it's it. What brought us together is because we are colleagues and good friends, and so we like to talk science <laughs> together. Right, and that that created a, a pathway to be able to talk to each other mm-hmm. because we come from very different scientific backgrounds. Seth, do you want to say a quick introduction so people can know your voice? Sure, I'm Seth Walk. I'm in microbiology and immunology. I think just a build on to what Valerie said. So, I mean, it was very much uh, instigated, I guess, by Francis and bringing us together. And Francis and I have been chatting about a project sort of around As this. soon as you arrived, yeah. I just yeah. ended up <laughs> your office yeah. and wanted to talk about the gut microbiome uh, and the nervous system. And it's such a hot field, right? Like well, every so other week there's a paper coming out. I know. So, yeah, there's a lot of knowledge gaps of how how our nervous system talks to our cells, but the cells that aren't us, which would be microbial. Yeah. And there's interactions there that um, there's sort of anecdotal evidence um, for um, clinical observations that we see in, in patients, but, you know, cellular observations that, you know, you take one of the pieces of the puzzle away and the whole thing doesn't work. So integrating... Uh, all this information across these different disciplines is very tough to do with, if you're trained in one of those. But mm-hmm. if and you have and also the language, you know, like yeah. neuroscientists have a language, yeah. microecologists have a language, biochemists yeah. have another language, and that makes it very complex. At first, you know, the first couple of meeting, I remember thinking, okay, wait, I don't <laughs> understand what Francis is saying, or like. Seth would talk about alpha, alpha diversity, beta diversity, right. and and it's still like okay. Now I'm get I know those terms, but I still so so just teaching each other our language so that we could actually come up with new ideas on where we wanted to go mm-hmm. was a big part of this. You know, synthesizing the proposal. We didn't just come together and say, oh, let's write a proposal. It was more like. 
you know, wait a minute, why are you telling me? You know, and I still don't understand exactly all the difference between a parasympathetic and a sympathetic neuron. But it's it's by meeting regularly and talking to each other that. So what I've loved about it is it's not just working on a core project, but I feel like I'm learning. I'm right. being educated by my peers. Right. Yeah, and it's kind of fun because you're like, oh, well. And by each other's students. Yes. yes. That's really yes. fun because we all have our own students. And yeah. and they come from different backgrounds yeah. and they come from different yeah. interests. Yeah, these joint meetings just, I mean, like the one we had yesterday, yesterday yeah. it just blows your mind. I mean, yeah. But I think that might be a very organic way to do research, right? You come together... Um, you think about one specific problem in the, in the terms of a grant proposal, and then you realize that uh, it's much bigger than that, right? Yeah. Like going to, Francis took us to FD Day, uh, a clinical day where we got to meet the patients, and just wow. really inspiring uh, to do that, to meet the families and, and the patients and, and the researchers and clinicians that work directly with them. It's very much inspiring. It's an opportunity that I would have never I've had. I never had. I never yeah. met yeah. patients on things that I, you know, I would talk, try to work, convince myself I would work on cancer, but I've never <laughs> really worked with a cancer patient. <laughs> and there it was like, and then this family that are so desperate and so grateful, yeah. they like, they would tell us, we are so thankful that you're working on, you know, because rare diseases, it's kind of like we'd call orphan disease, right? People don't, pay too much attention mm. so but but to see them being so grateful that any little thing we were willing to yeah. think about to try to you know in the long term to be able to help i mean th- we were like heroes it's like uh, whoa 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 <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> so it was kind it's of very moving it yeah. was and yeah and francis you went back so you yeah us. no i well, yeah, I was just there a couple of weeks ago again. And, okay. um, yeah, I mean, so we're really at the stage where, you know, it's time to start translating Whoa. what we're doing on mice to people. And, you know, now it's really like, you know, do or die. Right. And, like, now we need outcomes. Like, okay, if we're going to try therapy X, what are we going to measure? Right. How do we know what we're doing is working? So. Right. It's a whole new level uh, way of thinking, again, that I've never been trained to think in. We do basic science. Yeah. You know, like, we don't worry yeah. about applications <laughs> of what we're doing. Then we go know? into meditation and we let, yeah. let the humor and the yeah. senses disappear. But now it's the like outcomes, you know, for the FDA. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's a whole new level of that. Right. So... I agree. I love this. And at age 60, to be learning so many new things mm-hmm. is, you know, I love working with these guys. And, you know, that's why I went into academia. I think I just couldn't imagine doing a nine to five job. Right. And I wanted to be a kid and just <laughs> learn new stuff all the time. <laughs> right. That's what academia really lets you do. And and I will say this, that, you know, if we were at a large institution, if we were at Berkeley or MIT or Michigan, whatever, none of us would probably ever know each other. No. We'd be in our separate departments. I'd talk to 15 other neuroscientists. You'd talk to 30 chemists. You'd talk to or, 30 or microbiologists. Or, or zero. 
I mean, sometimes <laughs> you just stay in your lab and you right. don't even... But at a place like this, you know, there's only, you know, a few of each of us with our expertise. And when a new professor comes who's doing interesting work, you immediately learn about that person. Right. You know, we all met each other immediately. I attribute that to a, at least an institution of the size of MSU and where there has been a tradition of people, faculty being very open and friendly and collegial and Absolutely. talking. Yeah. So and, I, and I will creative. Say, you know, people yeah. come here because right. they want to be here. You know, yeah. You, that's right. You, you that's mean, right. Your yeah. ego is not in the way. You know, yeah. if, right. you were, if you go to MIT, I was a grad student at MIT, and we used to have to say the professors needed two offices, one for themselves and one for the ego. <laughs> <laughs> and, and guess which one was bigger? <laughs> the, the ego one. So, and, and to the point where it was, no, but it's... I totally agree with you. Whereas, yeah, you know, I just never going, heard that. Who's going to brag about... Uh, you know, being at MSU, my husband, right. I met him here, and he said to me, well, you know, we are the center of solar physics research. I said, oh, I didn't know if MSU was number one at anything. And he said, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it. it's true. And I never thought, well, then, okay. But anyway, so when, when you come to a place because you want to be there, because you feel you're making right. a difference, because that's where you feel that your psyche fits, mm. It's a very different environment. I right. Mean, you don't have to waste time stressing about it. When yeah. I was in Michigan, I always stressed, like, how do I, how am I going to get on tenure track, you know, and then is this the right place? Do I need to go? Some, I love living here, like, that part of my life. I don't even have to think about it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Now I can put that effort right. to research. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, and it was your students. You, right. Yeah, you yeah. just like, you know, yeah. go back and say to my colleague Brian Boston, hey, Brian, what do you think of X, Y, and Z? And, yeah. it, and, it, and the ones, the, the colleagues that like, hmm, well, okay, who you, you yeah. know them, but you're not feeling like, okay, I've offended, you know, God number two, so therefore <laughs> I will never be able to. You know, so it's just that. Yeah, that, that is not here. That yeah. negative energy yeah. is not there. Yeah. Which, Amongst the faculty. Yes, yes. The fa which yeah. helps because then in the in the trenches, then your energy is spent on positive things. On mm. okay, how do we solve this? How do we figure out is this a gut microbiome problem? Is it the you no, know, how did the neuron affect the gut? And how did this right. and yeah. how is how is this vicious circle of okay, there's microbiome dysbiosis and makes the the metabolism worse and then maybe it makes the neurons Degeneration and accelerate. How do we? How do we tease out who came first and how do we? So then you're, you know, in some ways you're free to think. Yeah. Big. Yeah. Right? And and I think that energy also attracts different students yeah. because the students who come here, you know, they they don't they, they're not interested in the egomania professors either. So but they you know so so it's it creates an environment. Yeah. Where it's very. Open new ideas, mm. yeah. new interdisciplinary ideas, yeah. And none of us, I mean, maybe said, but Francis and I, when I was trained, I was trained to be an oh, NMR yeah. spectroscopist, and I was going to build an NMR machine. Yeah. And it was like no. So this idea that I would have yeah. colleagues who are from totally different science background, right, it was completely unheard of and discouraged. Yeah, it's so, not the way we were trained. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's an interesting. Yeah. So for us, you know, the the new generation of students, we see them in our lab. 
They're doing microbiome stuff. They're, do, they're mm-hmm. doing histology yes, neuroscience. They're getting a really they're getting, they're great having training. They're having to do an MR and look at small peaks on a piece of paper. Yeah. It's a completely different way of training the next generation of scientists, yeah. which is, ex- I think it's exciting. Because yeah. I feel like, wow, if I was born now, well, maybe not now, but. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 it's. You go a, to first grade first. Yeah, and then high school. Uh, no, mm-hmm. I don't need to go back there. But. but it, it's an, a new, it's an yeah. amazing transformation yeah. in the way we think of training students. Yeah. yeah, and like as a student, even like opportunities like this to sit down with three faculty members and talk about a project would never exist. I feel like in a bigger institution, yeah, that's probably it true. doesn't happen. And I yeah. feel like we are doing research that is on par with some mm-hmm. of those bigger institutions. Mm-hmm. And so to be an undergrad and to have. Thank you again for spending time to sit down, like to have your guys' thoughts right here. Mm-hmm. It's amazing because I feel like it's something not every like no, and there's some places, places can offer in some or places cultivate you're even. like you know when I was when I was a grad student, there was a class that I was a TA. The t- the students who were undergrad, they were never seeing a professor, yeah. and I told them, I said, you know. You're paying a lot of money to get an undergraduate degree from MIT. But frankly, I mean, I'm you know, grateful that I'm... But you're not getting trained or you're not mm-hmm. getting the education yeah. from the professor. And sadly, at the time, the, the, and maybe that has changed now, but the students said, yeah, but we're paying for the name. And like, okay, um, you're paying for the name, but yeah. that, that gets you that far. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get you all away. Mm-hmm. So... I, I do think I do think professors being enthusiastic and one on one with students can be very re- rewarding. Oh yeah, for sure. And I kind of want to like move the conversation onto familial dysautonomia. Sure. And there is that one gene mutation. Is it the IKB cap? Is that how mm-hmm. are we pronouncing it? Mm-hmm. Is that seen in neurons, or is that seen throughout? That's a good question. It's actually very broadly expressed, okay. the gene, um, uh, in many, many tissues. The, the problem is, and we don't understand, there's so many things we don't understand still, but the problem is, so the um, nine, over 99% of patients have the exact same point mutation. And so, so it's a, a mutation in a splice site. And so it's a splicing problem. And for reasons we don't understand, the ma- many cell types in, the, in non-neuronal tissues can, in spite of the point mutation, still splice the gene normally. Only neurons have trouble splicing the gene. So there must be some cell-specific splicing factor that hasn't been identified that is missing in neurons uh, I mean, one paradigm would be, be missing in neurons and present in non-neuronal cells. It could be something different. But there's a difference in neurons and non-neurons. So, not, so neurons can't splice it, so they have reduced levels of the protein, whereas it varies. I mean, I, I, the patients vary greatly, and we don't understand why patients vary. But one reason could be that they're mosaics, essentially, depending on how many of their cells can successfully splice the gene and how many can't could affect the phenotype and why some have more severe, you know, kidney problems mm-hmm. while some have more severe gut problems, some have more severe cognitive problems. That again might vary 
based on spatially which cells in which organs splice the gene successfully. And therein lies the opportunity for treatment. Right? Yeah. Because of the heterogeneity and outcome, how do we take somebody that's very, uh, very affected and make them less affected? Uh, make them more, make it slow down. How do we do that? Uh, and that's, that's a beautiful way to describe it, I think, how you just described it. So Francis, has there any been any correlation with people measuring ICAP level, at least in the mouse So that's and being developed right now. So the, one of the companies that's working with Sue Slagenhops Group at Harvard, they're developing a very, very sensitive assay, cool. blood assay, to measure ICAP, the protein levels in the blood, to look to see if there is a correlation with, with patient severity. severity. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So then that that gene mutation... You know, that just, I just got going. an idea, actually, <laughs> based on that, that, you know, they're finding it in blood. We, we could try that in mice. Yeah. I never... Of course. You, yeah. I mean, we don't have the sensitive assays they're doing, but we should just see we if on a Western, Western blood, blood. Yeah. because we do have an antibody to mouse ICAP that works on a Western... And just see yes. if our mice with different phenotypes. Yes. I just <laughs> <laughs> this is how it happens. Thank you, Becca. Yeah. You got us. Yeah. Thank you. You know what this is? It's three people that like to go to seminars outside of their departments. Right? Yeah. Oh, yes. Because yeah. there's faculty that hate that. They yeah. love it. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. but I love it. Yeah. I yeah. Actually, no, I, I hate going to my own yeah. seminars. Yeah. yeah. Half the time, I'm like, why am I there? <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's like it's organic chemistry yeah. and I have no clue. Or it's like material yeah. science and I'm like, okay, I have no idea why I'm not going to do this and this. Yeah. 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 No, I so, love that too. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, did that answer your question? Yes, yeah. yeah. But anyway, that so that IKB cap gene mutation causes this yes variable phenotypes disease yes. phenotypes yes. right and one of them is gut dysmotility yeah yeah are we thinking are you guys thinking that plays into microbiome at all absolutely okay. absolutely yeah because the it's a crosstalk it's a system and uh, our cells talk to microbial cells and vice versa a lot of microbial metabolites uh, metabolism products of metabolism yep. um, are required for normal physiology of the gut Gut transit's just one of them. Absorption of nutrients, absorption of water, um, solute, different solute concentrations. And I mean, all those are very The gut cells process. produce serotonin, yeah. which I was like, what? I yeah. never yeah. learned that. Yeah. Yeah. 90% of the serotonin is <laughs> produced in the gut? gut. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, wait. As a response to microbes. Yeah, yeah. and right. the microbes make it too. Yeah, they make some uh, neurotransmitters, and, and that yeah. can directly fire neurons in the gut. But this second brain, the enteric nervous system that, yeah. that covers and innervates our GI tracts, is very much understudied. Uh, there's huge knowledge gaps there, how that works, and you know whether that might be uh, influencing how people sleep, their moods. You know, there's gut brain axis depression. Whether depression, there's a crosstalk right? with yeah. depression, yeah. autism. Yeah. Um, there's been fecal transplant therapies for autistic kids. Yeah, so this isn't a leap. Like this isn't just some wild, crazy idea. There's, there's some strong rationale to look at, right. at the microbiome. I and think. Th there's data that people who are clinically depressed that are on, you know, long-term clinical depression. I mean, um, antidepressant. Their gut microbiome has changed. 
right. and right. for you know to ameliorate the you know mm -hmm. so it's like the drugs are helping but at some point it's almost like they are the drugs are helping restore some kind of gut microbiome homeostasis that helps with the you know and and people are depressed it's interesting because well we have depression in my family so what's interesting is when you're really depressed you have no energy yeah. your your metabolic energy i mean you can't get yeah. up yeah. you i mean there's many symptoms you know but one of them is metabolically yeah. you can't you know it doesn't matter how long you sleep you can't you know you can't get up yeah. Yeah. so definitely there is a you know there is a feedback loop yeah. or that triggers metabolic impairment and so antidepressant okay they make your mood better but they mm. also help you with your metabolic energy and yeah. if that comes yeah. from the you know and if that your microbiome is changed because of this antidepressant again we get back to this gut brain metabolism access. Yeah. yeah and it's not what i really love about it it's not like cause and effect but for example there's there's a connection between the microbiome and the liver it's called the portal vein okay. when when the blood supply comes from the intestine it, the first stop is the liver the liver detoxifies things but then uh, there's a lot in the liver that gets recirculated yes. through the interhepatic yes. loop. So there's there's direct feedback from yes. the liver through the bile duct back into the intestine. So it's 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 a loop. It's connected yes. both ways, right? Mm -hmm. And then the nerves are just like in everything. There's innervation into the liver, innervation into the GI tract, and innervation to the brain. These signals. I mean. The vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve. And the, yeah. That and that's, was something I had a question about too. Yeah. Keep going. Well, that's, I mean, the the nerves isn't a one-way street either. Nerves are giving cues to the intestinal tissue that then respond to the microbes. And microbes are producing neurotransmitters and other metabolites to stimulate neurotransmission back to the brain. So that in itself is a loop too. So that's the real systems biology, I think, that, that we're talking about and I just think it's fascinating. I mean, mm -hmm. not thinking in linear terms, like does if I change the gut, do I get this outcome in the brain? That you, you could affect any part of this cycle. Mm -hmm. and, and that loop is, uh, the feedback loops, I think, are an important concept that um, it's, it's, not, it's not as straightforward as you like it to be. No. But, but I think with uh, some of the experimental tools that Francis has developed and some of the very advanced metabolomics that, that Valerie does. I mean, we can really and get Seth. a handle on it. And Seth, with Seth's got <laughs> free nice. mice, yeah. so he can derive mice that don't have a microbiome. Yeah. Right. And then we can transplant in, uh, do fecal transplants right. from patients or from healthy relatives right. and see how that exacerbates or ameliorates. Yeah clinical phenotypes right. i mean so yeah. or and just this, just seeing what the fd mutation in a germ-free mouse right does Looks it like, make yeah. does it make it worse right, right. Or, or, is it worse in that context yeah, yeah. yeah. Are, are they going to be able to survive it or are they going to be more yeah. susceptible yeah. Yeah. More susceptible. yeah that's going to be so, really yeah. interesting but you guys aren't looking for like so it's this vast network of biology feedbacks essentially, essentially yeah. right yeah. but you guys are looking for key specific points we're right? yeah we're trying to understand how these systems are interacting and what right. their effects are on each other so you know what are the baselines for example so are short-chain fatty acids aberrant is there a difference in diversity of microbes right. 
Um, you know, what does the nervous system look like? And, and who's talking to whom? And so we're trying to, I mean, it, you know, it's this vast network upon network upon network. Um, so it could, you know, last us the rest of our lives. <laughs> but we're trying to chip away and try to define some of the circuits that are essential. And especially, are there circuits that are definable that we could intervene mm -hmm. at those points, like nodes where we could intervene mm -hmm. to try to ameliorate, you know, gut problems? Could we, you know, could Seth identify five bacterial species that are really out of whack? in patients and then can we you know add something to put those microbes in check or you know increase levels of one or decrease levels of another you know mm -hmm. so so that's a potential treatment or Valerie might find you know particular metabolites that are out of whack and so oh wow could we treat with succinate and improve mitochondrial function by just giving patients succinate so so the goal is to come out with some real outcomes to help patients, but along the way, we're gonna uncover a lot of really interesting biology about right. how these systems interact right. in health and disease. Yeah. And what's interesting is, so some of the patients, they become blind. And Frances was telling us that, at least with her cousin, one of the breakpoint was when they lost their eyesight. Mm -hmm. So actually, Frances and some colleagues they are actually thinking of doing gene therapy to see, because in the retina, ICAP is expressed. Mm -hmm. So there's even just a direct right. project yeah. that Francis could talk, can talk about better than I can. But to me, it's fascinating that blindness, you know, you have blindness in diabetes, you have so yeah. you know, blindness become, and that, so in this disease, you could, you might, if you can ameliorate eyesight, well, okay, you're not fixing all the other problems, right. but maybe the patients are willing to, you know, that quality of life is mm -hmm. so much better. And yeah. so there's little things that we might be able to do which won't cure the whole disease, but if we could just ameliorate their quality of life. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And in a broader context, too, understanding the circuitry and how this goes together right. can apply to things like Parkinson's and, and other oh, yeah. neurodegenerative yeah. diseases. Yeah. Uh, this is such a fascinating system because of the single mutation versus Parkinson's or Alzheimer's where there might be dozens or tens of hundreds, I don't know, right. of different changes. And environmental condition, yeah. multifactorial, right. yeah. and whereas there you know it's... Yep. So the ability to experimentally control the factors here in this disease, I mean, we stand a really good chance of learning things, of pushing the boundaries, yeah. um, which is, that's fun too. I mean, yeah. FD, we're seriously going to make, there's going to be advances in the next. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the next very few, yeah. few years. <laughs> yeah, and um, now we've got another professor yes. in engineering. <laughs> yes. Or Chelsea oh, Hebron studying the bones of our mice and yeah. finding uh, the bones are different. So it's like there's so much to explore here. Uh, and yeah. um, so it's, yeah, we're becoming a real yeah. 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 So And the, the bones are brittle. And that seems to be related to the kidney, fact, kidney problems. problems. Yeah. And the patients have terrible kidney, kidney problems. problems. So it's like, oh, wow. So maybe if we measure creatine yeah. function, which is a readout of yeah. kidney and, yeah. then, and then the bone. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's all these different. It's like an onion. You're peeling the other <laughs> layer and you realize, oh, my God. But the second layer yeah. is as complicated as the first layer. Yeah. And 
but what, but again, this is a this is an assistant professor in in mechanical engineering, and you're mm. like, who would have thought that you know a bio a bi neuroscientist, an ecologist, gut microecologist, mm -hmm. a biochemist, and an engineer would be together all excited about looking at the yeah. the yeah. little things. That's yeah. excellent. Yeah. And the really cool thing I find <laughs> neurobiologists is so like you asked, patients have reduced levels of this protein in yeah. many tissues, but in our mouse, we've only reduced it in neurons. Ooh. So and we're recapitulating a lot of the phenotypes of the patients, which means that, you know, you reduce levels of this protein in neurons alone is sufficient mm -hmm. to interfere with all this systems physiology. Yeah. And oh, yes. that to yeah. me is just fascinating. It's like a level of control right. that I, I don't think has been fully appreciated. Yeah. So that alone is just amazing. Yeah. Right, because if, if you look at these pictures of, of the gut, the histology, they're completely messed up. Right. And, yeah. And, we don't, even, and yeah. we don't understand there's another person, uh, Professor Doug Kominsky, who is a gut immune. Well, immune. Yeah. 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 And he's, yeah. he's never seen this. Yeah. Francis shows yeah. him in this slide. He said, I don't know. There's this, <laughs> we see these cells from the gut that are just right. completely changed. Yeah. Right. And, so. it, and it's still, it's just in the, yeah. A neuron. So you yeah. have like a neuron specific mutation of this gene and yeah. that seems to be creating the yeah. phenotype but observed the gut, in humans. But the gut, like Seth was saying, the enteric nervous system yeah. in humans, that's a hundred million neurons. Yeah. So I don't know how many are in mice, but I mean, if you were to open up your gut, it's just, it's a carpet of neurons. So, yeah, you know, that is, that's a big it's, it's, yeah. it's a lot of cells to knock out a gene from. Right. Mm -hmm. And they are having a profound effect. Yeah. I had a question about the vagus nerve, as it yeah. seems to come up a lot in the literature of FD, and like yeah, and it also seems to be attached to like vomiting, and also five HT, like that receptor. Oh, yeah. When you give people Zofran, right, that blocks that five HT receptor to stop right. nausea and vomiting. So I was wondering, but if I don't you guys know had... if that's through the vagus. There's or is there's it something um, else? Yeah, there's a region in. Uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name, but um, you have these paraventricular organs, these regions where you don't have blood-brain barrier. Okay. And one of those is somewhere like... Is it like the CV CZ or something is the acronym for it? I'll look it up. I'll no, I forget what it's okay. called. But anyway, it I thought it was the sensor for toxins that you ingest. It's oh. like in the back of your esophagus. Mm -hmm. And it responds to serotonin. Oh, it, I see. So it will trigger so that might be vomiting to reject a, okay. a toxin, potential toxin. That was my understanding. Okay. But what you're right is that the patients have these autonomic crises okay. where they start vomiting. And that we think, and actually, so a former postdoc <laughs> of mine is, now has her own lab in Billings, Lynn okay. George, and she's actually really interested in this. And she thinks what's going on is... Um, instead of the adrenal gland, which sort of re reacts to stress, um, the adrenal gland should be release releasing norepinephrine. And norepinephrine does not trigger vomiting, but 
if dopamine isn't converted to norepinephrine, then you release too much dopamine. And that could be the reason for the vomiting. Okay. And um, so she's interested in what's, why is dopamine not being converted? Right. She thinks it's got something to do specific to the disease. So, so we think that's going on. But separately, the vagus is essential here because the vagus innervates your esophagus, and so the, the one of the biggest problems, that it, well, it innervates the esophagus, innervates the lungs, it innervates right. the gut, innervates the liver, innervates everything, and it communicates with the brain. Um, and so a classic day in a person's life with FD is they don't have enough neurons that mediate swallowing, mm. the sensory neurons that respond and tell your muscles how to contract to swallow something. Those cells are vagal. And they're reduced in numbers, we think. And so they don't swallow properly. So then they aspirate and they get lung infections as a result. So then they get antibiotics, which screws up their gut microbiome. And they tend to get sort of a chronic lung disease from all oh, the lung goodness. scarring. And then in addition, because the vagus isn't working properly, they have erratic blood pressure control. So that stresses the kidneys, and um, if, if you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. okay, thanks, Seth. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, so the vagus is key here, absolutely. Okay. They also they don't detect low oxygen levels, so they can faint easily, and it's because the sensory neurons, which are in the vagus, that detect oxygen, are missing. And so you don't make the compensatory um, blood pressure increases that you should. So the hardest part of the day, actually, for an FD patient is getting out of bed. So yeah. going from horizontal to vertical, where you have to raise your blood pressure so that when you stand up, you don't faint. They can't do that because when they stand up, they don't detect the reduced oxygen from right. the reduced blood pressure. And so they don't raise their blood pressure, raise their heart rate. So how long does it take for them? A patient told me it could take him an hour to get out of bed in the morning. To just, just gradually become upright. Yeah. And what about, can you talk also about the, was it fundulation? Yeah, fundo, fundoplication. Fundo, yeah, whatever so that's, yeah. they, have a, they have a bad, um, they have really bad gastric reflux. And again, I, actually we're studying this and we think it's probably the sphincter um, that, that regulates the, you know, the flux back mm -hmm. you know, between the stomach and the um, esophagus isn't innervated properly. So they have really bad gastric reflux, so, which can cause esophageal damage. So they, um, they do this procedure where they essentially wrap they essentially try to make a sphincter by wrapping the stomach around the esophagus. Mm. And when they do that, they often cut the vagus nerve. So, which is like the last thing you'd want yeah. to do for a patient yeah. with FD. Yeah. So, you know, all yeah. these, these features, you know, feed back on each other and complicate the clinical yeah. phenotype experience of having FD. And so, Again, you know, we're trying separate experiments where we do vague, just selectively cut the vagus now to see what does that do mm -hmm. to the enteric nervous system. 
And because um, the vagus heavily innervates the enteric nervous, what does it do to the microbiome? What does it do to liver metabolism? Yeah. So we're really, yeah, interested yeah. in how the vagus, the vagus is a major player here. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when we went to uh, FD Day, it was also very moving to see the patient because some of them, they look, they look just like you and I. Mm. They're very, you know, they're communicative. They're, you know, you can barely tell. I, you know, they would be, you know, they have they have some disability. And then right next to it, you'd have a, a patient in a wheelchair mm. pretty much just not at all connecting. And you're like, you know, and they're about the same age. I mean, not, mm. not quite, but, you know, they because a lot of them don't live beyond their late late 20s early 30s so so you're like oh my god here is this this same disease right their parents are carriers and Mm -hmm. and that person is still kind of able to function you know the patient would argue with the mother when they were talking to us and then the other one the that patient is just not 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 at all it's very similar and so and you're like why you know why is it if it's just that one gene and it's just about having so there's definitely a complexity that we don't understand because it's it's got to be maybe it has to be those feedback feedback loops that makes it more severe in one versus the other one and we haven't even touched on the neuroimmune cells. Yeah, right. I was just going to say, like, what about yeah. immunity? Because the, the gut cells. has an immune, uh, you know, a vast immune the network. The gut microphage. Yeah. We think there is actually, Francis has data suggesting we have a Yeah, a student in the lab is really interested in the neuroimmune axis in FD and showing, you know, there might be decreased numbers of macrophage in the yeah. gut. So. Even though we having you know neurons are dying, and you need macrophage to clean out those dead neurons. So if there's a problem with macrophage influx to clean out yeah. debris and foster, and the neurons and macrophage talk to each other extensively, mm-hmm. so if yeah. that arm is broken down, right. that also is right. going to so, have. So their macrophages are stopped with the inflammation, and then there's a different population come in to do like wound healing. So if mm-hmm. your gut you know, let's say the gut integrity is compromised, at some point you're going to want macrophages that can help with wound healing. Mm-hmm. But if those populations are compromised, right. then you have this leaky gut that gets worse and worse. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so there's, there's just incredible... I mean, it's almost like biology... Yeah, you can teach biology just... just <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, using yeah. this disease because yeah. every organ system's affected. Yeah. And yeah. I had a question about metabolism and how it relates to neurons and neuronal health because that seems there are like some things suggesting like inflammation is causing depression and that seems to be very mm-hmm. vague but also like legitimate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's some information saying diabetes is a precursor or high blood sugar is like a precursor for Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia mm-hmm. in some, some literature. And so I'm wondering like what Clearly, patients with FD have altered metabolism, right? They, there's an altered yes, they, metabolism there. Yes, their BMI is significantly reduced compared okay. to... So, so the energy currency is ATP. So they, mm-hmm. they definitely have challenged making ATP. Usually you do ATP by taking glucose through glycolysis, and then the, you get pyruvate. This is a three-carbon intermediate. It goes through the TCA cycle. 
which then produce a molecule called an ADH, and then those electrons are fed through the electron transport chain, and you get a lot more ATP through what we call aerobic oxidative phosphorylation. So these people, the big problem with, with this kind of pathway is if you just, if you use oxygen, the other, it's great, because you make 10 times more ATP. Mm -hmm. The problem is you also create what we call reactive oxygen species. So these are unpaired electrons that can go anywhere and they can destroy membrane, they can destroy protein. So, so anytime you get electron going through the electron transport chain, great, you get more ATP, but you know, it's like you're causing damage. Mm -hmm. And those damages are usually kept in check. But in, in, in FD, what, what happens is if they have an energy compromise, they also have a, an inability, and you need a molecule called NADPH to, to basically make those reactive oxygen species inactive. So <clears throat> in FD, it looks like they have trouble making ATP, but if they have, have an energy deficit, they're also going to have an energy deficit in, in uh, inability to make this, what I call detoxification molecule, mm -hmm. NADPH. So the reactive oxygen species that are produced, they're going to accumulate and they're going to make more and more damage. So it could be also like a feedback loop where because of the imbalance, don't have enough energy for you know moving around and whatever, but they also don't have enough ability to detoxify things. And, and, and that is going to be a problem. So we think there's impairment in the electron transport chain this is what we were thinking, maybe using succinate to try to bypass, to try to get more energy out and see if we can get the electron to go back the right way and not kind of cause mm -hmm. havoc. Do you guys know, how, do you know how neuron death happens? Like, is it a demyelination or do they die or is it... Something? Well, we know it's apoptosis. Okay. Um, so both in the adult and in the embryo. Um, and in the embryo, we've shown that there's a problem with DNA repair. So we showed that um, uh, the progenitor cells that have to divide frequently and have to undergo a lot of DNA repair, those cells die, the progenitors. And we showed oh. it's due to impaired DNA repair. And that breaks up a whole another issue in terms of what the function of the gene is okay. and, or the protein because it the protein's involved in translation and certain codons um, uh, certain mRNAs have you know there's redundancy in the in the amino acid code mm -hmm. and so some are like AA ending some are AG ending but it turns out AA ending codons are harder to translate and yeah. you need our protein to help in the translation. So we showed that all those DNA repair genes happen to be codon biased. They have lots of AA ending oh. codons. And so this whole family of proteins that are involved in DNA repair are just reduced oh. in FD. So we have a deficiency in DNA repair. Yeah. And interestingly, FD patients are, have a much higher rate of cancer. And I think we think that's because Whoa. of the impaired DNA repair. And also some of those AA codon bias code for metabolic enzymes that are... Yes, and that, that, I mean, that's a so, so those are also not expressed to the level that normally... So that also has an impact on metabolism. 
That's super interesting. Oh my god. Yeah, what I know. A it's a whole nother level of complexity. Yeah, it's like that's a puzzle. Fascinating. I know. What it's a puzzle like, yeah. you know, if we have snow for the next six months, you just stay home and you do the puzzle. <laughs> you know? And the puzzle is FD. Yeah. You just put the pieces yeah. together. Yeah. This piece I think looks like it goes next to the yeah. liver. Yeah. Actually, yeah. nope, it goes next to yeah. the microbiome. Yeah. Oh, we're wrong again. It goes in neurons. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I'll I'll go for the liver pieces. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, you guys, for sitting down and talking. I oh, really appreciate you. it. Thank you. Thank you. That yeah. was fun. And yeah. you, you stimulated a really good oh, idea. Western blot of ICAP in the blood of mice. You know, it's a wonderful initiative to do yeah. this podcast. Mm. Post, podcast, podcast. There we go. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you.